up? This is Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the TalkHouse podcast. Today I'm joined by... Hey, I'm Amy Rose Spiegel, TalkHouse Music's Editor-in-Chief. We have a fantastic show today. The rapper Odyssey in conversation with Sincane. These are two artists that have shared studios. The guys have shared gear. They've been to each other's shows. Crucially to this talk, they also share a Sudanese heritage. Another thing they have in common is that they've both had huge years. Each dropped a studio and a live record. Totally. Now, Sinkane, whose real name is Ahmed Abdullahi Galab, released Life and Live in It, which is this hard-to-describe record. It, it's funky. It's got Afro-Cuban percussion, rock guitars, bits of synthy electro-pop, some reggae. I want to play you guys a clip of Deadweight. Check this out. It's rad, right? Yeah, it's so good. The whole album is like that. It it mixes genres on every track. And he did that again later in the year with the Berlin Sessions EP, which was recorded in that city at Red Bull Music Studios. For his part, Odyssey, whose real name is Amir Mohammed El Khalifa, is a rapper from D.C. who is now based between New York City and Europe. His most recent studio record is The Iceberg, which just came out earlier this year. And he's also just released Beneath the Surface, a live record on Mellow Music Group. And it's a hell of a live record. Odyssey brought the band Good Company out on the road and they performed all of the Iceberg live, recorded that and released that as Beneath the Surface. I want to play you guys a track from this. Check out this clip from the track Digging Deep. Good shit, right? Yeah, it's awesome. (laughs) Now, one thing that needs to be noted about Odyssey, this dude is super prolific. This is a guy who's been in the rap game for just over 10 years, but has already released literally almost a dozen studio LPs and another almost dozen mixtapes. One thing that he and Sinkane get into in this talk is that hard hustle that got them the recognition they now have. Right, and it's particularly interesting because they also talk about coming from families that wanted them to secure these well-paying jobs, but instead coming up in DIY art scenes. These dudes definitely jammed a Kano. Yeah, for sure. The guys also take in the 90s rock star that haunted a young Sinkane's dreams. They talk about how the infrastructures for new hip-hop and punk acts has totally changed over the last few decades right up to now. We hear about Odyssey's amazing Hudson Mohawk connection and how the band Caribou changed Sinkane's life. And crucially, we get some, as Sinkane puts it, Sudanese dad wisdom. Should we roll the tape? Let's do it. All right. We have like some mutual Sudanese friends in New York. There's like a crew of us that are young and um, ambitious and do a lot of things together. Um, Un-Sudanese things. Un-Sudanese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting like expat community that exists that was, you know, comes from our families who are, who, you know, the, the expats. But um, we all kind of like congregate together because we, are, we feel different than other people, specifically people in the Sudanese community as well. And we relate uh, through our ambition and through our interests. 
And we met there at like a, a friend, mutual friend's house, Al Khair, who kind of is a connector. He brings a lot of people together. Definitely. He's a really the maven of all mavens. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, but I remember the first time I heard about Amir was through my sister when I was living in Columbus, Ohio. And she was saying, yo, I, I found this guy on the internet, this Sudanese dude who's rapping. And he's actually <laughs> legit. He's like an actual musician. He's not like, you know, faking it. And I was like, well, let me check out who this dude is. And I like looked him up. It was MySpace days. And there was this article that he posted about um, uh, an interview that he did saying that he uh, linked up with DJ Jazzy Jeff. And he, he got his ambition from talking to his father. His father asked him, when are you going to make it? When is this music thing going to happen? And he said, give me a year. And that's the same thing that I <laughs> talked to my father about. It was the same exact thing. And I was like, yo, it's kindred spirits. This yeah. is like an interesting thing. So I was like, I got to figure this dude out. I got to like learn from him. I got to link with him, you know? Yeah, I definitely remember that. I remember your sister reaching out to me to do uh, some sort of a Pan-African music event in Columbus. You guys were going to university out there. Yep. And I couldn't make it. In typical Sudanese fashion, I sent my cousin, which was enough. <laughs> and he played the event and kept in contact with you and your sister. And then your sister came to New York, and I was back and forth to New York. Mm -hmm. And we hung out, and we're moving in the same circles. She got an internship, I remember, at Fader. Yep. And um, I was up there because the office of the indie label I was working with was in the same building as Fader up on 23rd. Mm -hmm. So I would see her all the time. And then in that typical Sudanese fashion, my brother, it was his time to come back to, to America from Sudan to go to university. He goes to the University of Phoenix. Yep. And who do we know that lived in Phoenix is your parents. My parents. <laughs> so who does my brother end up going over his house and having dinner is your house. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's um, how it became closer and closer, you know? It's been crazy <laughs> for me because... Um, my whole thing, and I think a lot of people who are like us, Sudanese people our age, we have a lot of issues with identity and our place in the world and um, confusion of like, you know, where do we reside, you know? And in the music industry, I've turned that into my, my career. Everything that I write about is that. And I always find a struggle uh, relating to other musicians because they're so grounded in this one thing, you know? And it was a breath of fresh air to, to meet Amir and to run into him because we're, we, we're cut from the same cloth and we're, do, we're, we're playing different music, but the sentiment, you know, that we put through our music is the same. So it's sure. really, really nice when, whenever he releases a record, I'm so inspired by it. And you know? vice versa. I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Being Sudanese and being raised in America and not doing the typical jobs or going the path that most Sudanese parents expect their children to do, which is something that when you come from a developing country, you want, you encourage your kids to pursue a career that is more so safer and guaranteed to generate income. Mm -hmm. So that's why the encouragement of architects, engineers, doctors, lawyers, et cetera. And you and I, we were the black sheep. We chose to do music. Growing up, when I decided that I wanted to do music and especially hip hop, the Sudanese community where I'm from, assumed that I was a drug dealer. <laughs> so really? Obviously, I was a drug dealer. Stay, stay away from Amir. He does that rap stuff. He's definitely a drug dealer. He's definitely a criminal. Mm -hmm. So my question for you was, you came to America and you went to 
the interior of the country. You were in the Midwest. You were in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. You were around rock and mm -hmm. indie culture. Did the Sudanese community and your parents in specific, I always imagined that if the Sudanese community thought that I was selling it, that because you were in rock, they thought you were doing it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> did, they, did they think you were doing drugs while I was selling drugs? No, they some some of them thought I was a devil worshiper. <laughs> For real, yeah. Which I think is weird. There we go. You turned it up a notch. Yeah, that, okay. which is weird because you know I remember when I was I remember when I was uh, living in Utah. Yeah. Not only the Sudanese community thought I was a devil worshiper, everyone thought I was a devil worshiper. That's right, because you guys were around Mormons. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And um, I remember. That was back when, I think in the seventh grade, 1995, yeah. that was when Marilyn Manson was like a big deal. Sure. And I was scared shitless of Marilyn Manson. I thought he, I, I would sleep with, with my lights on. Yeah. Because I, for some reason, I thought he was going to come into my, my room <laughs> and eat me or something, you know? And, and then somehow people thought I was the devil worshiper, you know? I was like the only black kid in school. Yeah. I was the only non-Mormon in school. I skated. And I was a devil worshiper. It was right. weird. It just didn't. It didn't make any sense to me. It was because I was different. Drug dealers and devil worshippers. Yeah, man. Here we are. I mean, <laughs> but it's funny because I always found that to be, you know, the more that I make music and the more that I work on music, I always go back to that feeling and how it made me feel, yeah. and it still gives me encouragement. You know, totally, totally in this weird way. I'm I'm drawing from the same things. There was. So many people in the community back home that just thought I was destined for failure or nothing mm -hmm. because I didn't go to university. Everyone is an overachiever in the Sydney's community. Yep. I didn't go to school. I didn't care about school. So they just knew that I was going to be a failure. And I think my business sense comes from wanting to um, not make everyone right, mm -hmm. to prove them wrong, so to speak, you know? And I don't know, did, what, did you have any of those same issues? I, you didn't really grow up in a heavy Sudanese community. I guess Phoenix is like the second largest in America uh, next to where mine is. Or is it the largest now? Um, I think yours is. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't really grow up in Phoenix. So True. Northeast Ohio is where I first was around somewhat of a Sudanese expat community. And it, it wasn't huge, but it was definitely a thing. Sure. You know? Sure. And I think that growing up, a lot of the people in that community, when they would ask me about music, they would I'd probably the same thing as you. They'd be like, oh, well, that's a, a thing, a phase he's doing. Yeah. He's he's eventually going to go to college and he's going to do his thing in college. Yeah. And um, then when I went to college and I kept continued to do music and they would ask me what I did on my time off and were are you doing internships or anything? And I said, no, I'm going to go on tour. It would always be like a, a confusing look. But, you know, they wanted to be nice, but they were just like, that's, you're such a loser yeah. you know that's yeah, what I, totally. that's what i got out of that whole thing totally but uh, you know being young and angsty and like a part of like a punk rock hardcore scene not only did i want to prove them wrong i wanted to like shove it in their face you know and yeah. say you you don't know me and i'm going to do this and i'm going to show you this you know yeah. but the older that i get and the, the more the more success i i get i i'm not really interested in proving them wrong but i'm interested in the miscommunication that was created between my parents' generation and kids, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's something that I've always grown up understanding, and I was never angry at my father or my stepmother. Um, there is no opportunities 
like the ones that we have now Absolutely. for our parents and their generation back in Sudan. So for them to be able to think outside of that box to see our opportunities is almost asking too much. Mm-hmm. And I've always understood that and have been very, very patient. You know, they're coming from a place where if they would have encouraged me to be a full-time musician in Sudan, they would have been setting me up for failure. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to generate the type of income to survive, mm-hmm. especially as a rapper. Yep. So they don't have a, a, a background to even encourage me to do that. They came to America to give us these opportunities and they had no idea how many more yep. were available that were beyond them. It was over their heads. Yep. And the older I get and the more I realize that, I think you and I are paving a way not only for Sudanese children growing up outside of Sudan, but first-generation kids in general who have this disconnect from their parents and learning how to traverse that relationship, yep. you know? Yeah, I, I've done a few talks in, like, the Sudanese community. My parents, they uh, run the Sudanese Studies Association and they yeah. have a conference every year, and I've talked on several occasions at the conferences about my experience being a child of the second generation diaspora and how it influenced me to be who I am and to do what I do. And we both played at the Arab Muslim. I haven't played yet. Oh, you haven't played there yet? I'm playing in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So I I played there and I did a talk at the the Arab American um, National Museum Mm -hmm. in Dearborn. And we talked about similar things, being a child of the second generation diaspora and how that influenced me to be who I am and do what I do. And the overarching thing that I realize in those talks is that both generations, the child, the children, children's generation, our generation, sure. and the parents' generation are saying the same exact things to each other, but it's the, the way that they talk to each other, it's almost like two ships in the night. You know, they don't, sure. they're not hearing what the other is saying, but they're both saying the same thing back Absolutely. and forth, you know? Absolutely. And I, was, I remember the Sudanese Studies Association conference, I got approached by this man and his daughter, and they're both talking to me, telling me, you need to speak. You need to speak to my daughter. You need to speak to my dad. <laughs> both of them, you know? And it was really, it's, it's really interesting to me, you know, because everyone wants the best for each other, and we all want to do what we want to do, but the communication has kind of turned into this, it's festered into this, like, unnecessary problem you know well i mean we're in a unique circumstance of seeing things on the inside out and the outside in mm-hmm. uh you just got back from europe when monday, monday. Two I, days ago, I came yeah. back wednesday yeah. um we were missing each other about like days i know for a fact the questions that i was being asked i'm sure you were being asked and let me set this question up whereas do you feel as though people outside of America and inside of America feel more comfortable talking to you about worldly affairs because of your duality and almost too comfortable where they overstep themselves in assumptions. You ever had that happen to you? I mean, the amount of people asking me about Trump in interviews Mm -hmm. overseas, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like I'm an aficionado all of a sudden, (laughs) as a result of my background, um, I actually stopped them. I said, no more questions about that. I I sent it in advance, like, stop asking me questions about Trump. I I feel like, (laughs) I I think it's true. What's funny to me is it's, it's almost loaded. Where yeah. they, they'll say, so what do you think about Trump? And they yeah. got this grin on their face like they're expecting <laughs> something out of me right. that I don't know, you know? Right. Or like, you're, you're, you're from one of the seven countries. What's, 
Yeah. What's your take on this kind of thing? Yeah. And it's it's funny because I I address this in one of my songs in uh huh, I talk about how shit sucks. You know, in this time, there are a lot of terrible things happening, but it's always been this way. Yeah. There's always been an issue. You yeah. know, like we were first. I guess the two of us were first consciously exposed to this kind of fear after 9-11, you know? 100%. And going back to Sudan after 9-11 changed everything. My parents didn't want to be, didn't want my, my family to become U.S. citizens until 9-11, you know, yeah. for our security. And that was what, you know, 15, 20, almost 20 years ago now? Totally. Everybody and, in my neighborhood turned their backs on us. Yeah. You know, and all then, our neighbors. And then in the 80s, there was AIDS, and AIDS was a big thing, yeah. you know? So that, there was a problem going on. And in the 70s, there was more uh, issues with drugs and race, civil rights in the 60s, um, the Jim Crow era. There's uh, the Great Depression. There's always an issue going on in the world. Yeah, it, it irritates me a bit because people hear the nature of my music classified as conscious. Okay, mm-hmm. it is what it is. And assume that I'm anti-American or assume that I'm not proud to be American. And especially when I'm abroad, uh, people who are at merch tables will come up in conversation. Oh, you're American. Oh, where are your family from? Oh, Sudan. And then they they think that that is a, now a, a, a point where they can comfortably bash America. And are oftentimes quite surprised when they discover that I'm very proud to be American, mm-hmm. but not proud for the reasons that they think. Yeah. And, you know, my, I'm only half Sudanese. Yeah. You know, and... I was raised by two Sudanese people, my stepmom and my dad, but I'm 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 African American and I'm Sudanese. And an African American contribution to American history I'm uber proud of. Yeah, absolutely. Of music. Like, do you know how it feels every time I go abroad and I sense what could be racism, could not be. I definitely feel like I'm trained to think everything is racist because of America, mm-hmm. even though it might not be. Um but even in those environments where I may be the only black person or I might sense some form of racism, I will still hear rap music played in that cafe or that mm-hmm. club or that restaurant or that retail store. I'll still see our fashion everywhere. Mm-hmm. And those are the reasons that I'm super proud to be American. And it's really shocking to people when they see the nature of my music and the message in my music, which is a very much, I have a lot of issues with what's going on in the States as everywhere else in the world, but that doesn't define what I think is American. And then I ask you, like, are you, are you proud to be from here? Of course. I think I'm proud to be from here. I think I'm proud of where I come from. And I think in these times, it makes me even more proud. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. You know, I saw this documentary on, on Merle Haggard. And um, I thought it was really inspiring something he said about um, during his time, there was a lot of anti-American uh, rhetoric and, and stuff going on because of the Vietnam War, you know? And he said something about, like, how, you know, I don't know any more of what's going on with this war as this hippie does, but that doesn't, that doesn't make me hate, you know, what America is doing, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of what's going on here that I'm proud of as well, you know, sure. so I want to embrace myself as an American. And that resonated with me in a way because there, America is, you know, a part of a prop of a global problem, you know, 
But at the same time, I feel like there are a lot of us here who are good people. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's really important to present a positive image of who you are and where you come from in order for these, those ugly things and those terrible things sure. to not exist anymore, sure. you know, and to kind of come away from that situation. So it does make me proud to be an American. It makes me proud to be a Sudanese person as well. And it makes me proud to be a global citizen at the yeah, same time, you know? Totally. So it's all, it's all there. We're all interconnected. Do you feel like you can have a career or the career that you have now? Do you feel like you could have done that anywhere in the world? No, definitely not. Why? Like, because I feel like that too. Like, I'm super thankful to be an indie rapper from America mm -hmm. for no other reason other than not having resources and what that does for your business sense. Yeah. Like, do you, <laughs> I feel like if I was raised anywhere else in the world and I tried to do this, I don't think I could have pulled it off. Me, me personally. I mean, there, there was the obvious, like if we lived in like London or something. I don't, or like think, I don't think I could have done this in London. Really? No. Too many resources. Too many resources. Yeah, it's too many resources over there. Wow. I don't think I could have done it. That's interesting you say too, <laughs> too many resources. They, you know how many programs they have that fund like youth yeah. uh, studios and grants for like to produce albums? I couldn't have that. You know what's funny? <laughs> this, is, this, this is really interesting. I've been reading this book called Stretch. Have you heard of it? No. This book's called Stretch. It's about um, the difference between a person who's a stretcher and a chaser. A chaser is a, a person who's always chasing for resources in order to complete or attain his goals. Sure. And a stretcher is a person who will utilize what he's got in front of him um, and, and thus act more creatively with the resources that he has and be, to, be, to becoming successful. And a stretcher is more successful than a chaser. And something I've noticed about your career is that's how, it's, how it seems you work. And I remember specifically one of the first times we talked way back in the MySpace era, I would see that you were doing these epic tours in Europe. <laughs> And yeah, I was like, those, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, how the hell are you doing them? And I remember you telling me something really specifically. You said, you said, I set up uh, production workshops with a bunch of people and I planned my tours around those uh, production workshops. And just now, when I was in Berlin, I was talking to some people about you and they were telling me that as, as part of your story. Dude, those, were, those years, I would work with anyone abroad who was putting out 12 inches to make sure that I could establish my name. I was sleeping on the promoter's floors. Mm -hmm. I was buying a Euro pass, unlimited travel a month, <laughs> you know, for a month or more. And I was just getting it in. Also, the kicker, I was touring in February, in mm -hmm. January. I remember getting tickets from Newark for 350 round trip, going out when no one was doing shows, but there were hip-hop nights every week. And I would book it to make sure that I was performing at a hip-hop night. So whether I was there or not, it'd be 300 people there. Wow. And, <laughs> and that's how I started. So I was, I was, it was really difficult. Because you imagine everyone in the middle of the dance floor is partying. Yeah. They throw you on at 1 o'clock in the morning and you interrupt the party. Yep. And I remember reading about the Beatles in Hamburg. Mm -hmm. and it was, It's Hamburg, right? Yep. Where they, yep. they had their 10,000 hours started. And yep. I remember reading about that after the fact in Malcolm Gladwell and realizing that I had done that to myself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it really has shaped me as a performer and my career in subjecting myself to 300 strangers and interrupting their party 
with a vocal live performance. It was terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> so let, let me ask you this. I come from punk and hardcore music. Yeah. And in punk and hardcore music, there's an established DIY ethos and yeah. understanding of how you can make it all on your own. You don't need oh, rap is super many behind people. You on that. Yeah. Yeah. And like if you if you go back, you know, you could read about this in many different books. Michael Azarad talks about it in This Band Could Be Your Life. Um, you can, if you look up the history of Black Flag, mm-hmm. um, there's a website and a network and a book that is a directory of promoters, um, people who have a floor to sleep on, any kind of like, any kind of resources, you know, that for for touring that oh that God, that, that has existed. existed. Yeah, it's existed <laughs> since the since the '90s, you know. And you look back at bands in the '80s in punk and hardcore, how they would travel. Uh, in, with a like in the Greyhound, you know True. Greyhound circuit, and they'll go to different towns and ask uh, places. They put backline on the Greyhound. No, no, no. They would just they would they would uh, book the tour by calling up punk houses all around the United States. Yeah, and uh, asking to borrow gear. What's the money like in that? No, there's nothing, man. I mean, you can eat though. Like you can live. It's. I don't even know if it was even about that. You know, you just do it just to network and to to to. To be a part of the the community, you know, money wasn't wasn't that much of an issue. You know, that's how I started. You know, we would tour in a shitty van, play house shows every night, what? and we'd we'd find these people that would help us out. You know, but I I see that in the in how you started. I see that in this in this thing that you did in Europe, and I wonder where did that come from for you? Does that exist in the hip hop scene, or did you come up with it on your own? Where would you get the inspiration for that? Um, that's funny you ask because I recently have been realizing that there's all these new terms for what we do, mm-hmm. like direct to fan marketing and things like that, yeah. that when we were doing it, you'd be lying if you said you were conscious of it. Maybe you were cause you come from a punk background, but I definitely wasn't conscious of what I was doing. It just felt necessary mm-hmm. because true outlier form i came at the, the end of an era mm-hmm. i'm the i'm the i'm i was part of the last era of when you rap is to do a demo to get a deal mm-hmm. that's very opposite of the of punk scene mm-hmm. everything was about getting a deal you didn't know what that deal was you didn't know it was like the wizard of oz just says i just gotta get <laughs> the deal <laughs> it's like what what is it? it's just i don't know man i just gotta get a deal i gotta get signed yeah and then that's what everything was about and i came at the tail end of that where everything started collapsing. Yep. And internet. Yeah, Napster is specific. Yep. You know, I was with I was at Jazzy Jeff. I was a touch of jazz. Studio rooms A through J, largest studio on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And then out of nowhere, it's like, um, we're gonna shut this one down, shut this one down. And then Sony and Universal closed down their urban departments and they moved Beyonce and J Lo to Pop. Mm-hmm. And um artist development programs are are stopped at yep. all major labels. And then the internet booms and explodes and then all of these artists come out of nowhere. And then you start to get these niche artists who are shaping the future of the music industry. And that's where I was born. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't conscious of it at all. I'd be totally lying if I said I was. But suddenly I'm talking to a fan of mine in another country who prior to my space I never knew existed. I never had a way to interact with them. And they're saying, hey, you should come do a show in 
Malmo. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Malmo, come do a show. It's like, how do I do that? And he's like, well, I go see shows at this hip-hop club here. And I was like, well, who do I talk to? He's like, oh, I know the promoter. And I was like, you think he can give me his email address? <laughs> he's like, yeah, sure. So he did. And then Berlin, and then Mainz, and then Frankfurt, and then uh, Stuttgart, and then mm-hmm. Dusseldorf, and then London, and then Paris. And I literally was contacting my fans who were telling me you should do a show here and making them go out and get the promoter's email addresses. And then I accumulated a database of promoters. And then once I got it, I started working with artists. Uh, the first rap record to be released by Hudson Mohawk was me. And a lot of people don't know that. He was in a group called Heralds of Change with a right. guy named Mike Slot, mm-hmm. And they were on a record label called All City Records based out of Dublin. Mm-hmm. And... Hudson Mohawk and Mike Slot hit me up on MySpace. And it's like, hey, man, I want to do a record with you. I do a record with them. They fly me out to do an uh, album release party. Hudson Mohawk's from Scotland. Mike Slot's from Dublin. So then they fly me to Scotland to do one there because he was from there, Ross. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I didn't go home. All those people that I contacted, which was Giannis from Jakarta Records. Mm-hmm. I, I did a show at a community center in his suburb of Cologne. And I slept at his mom's house. And this, this is the guy who runs Jakarta Records. Now. Yeah. He's one of the first people to discover uh, music from Anderson Pack. Yep. He put out Keitronada's first 12 inches. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, Habibi Funk, et cetera. Yep. I slept on his mom's house. She came to the show a couple weeks ago. She's like, do you remember me? Yeah. She slept on my couch. <laughs> do, you know, do you know other people in hip-hop who did that like you? I'd be doing a disservice if I said no because I'm not saying that they didn't exist but I come from Washington DC where we don't have the music scenes of of Fifth Ward, Houston, Atlanta, New York, the Bay Area because while I was doing it everyone knew Master P and how he started No Limit Mm -hmm. and everyone knew about the Bay Area hustle of artists out of the Bay Area selling things out of their trunk like Too Short etc. We knew of them and no one did it. We were too close to New York in the D.C. area where we were bit by the bug of you must get a record deal and be signed. And there were a lot of indie rappers where I come from, but I don't know of anybody else who was connecting the dots when I was. I'm sure there were artists before me because that's the thing about D.C. If people hear this and they're like, no. Nah. <laughs> like get crucified people would come out of the woodwork like I was doing that when you was in diapers yeah <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> um, but no I don't know anyone who was doing what I was doing and I I credit my dad for it mm-hmm. my father always told me who's a businessman himself have your hands in as many things as possible have a lot of small things not one big thing mm-hmm. so my goal was to do as many things as possible so I started making my own beats mm-hmm. started recording myself Uh, obviously wrote my own rhymes, started booking my own shows, and learned everything I could before I asked someone to do it for me. Also another dad lesson. Mm -hmm. My father bought me a 1984 Toyota Celica as my first car. And it was a a bucket. And I was like, oh my God, dad, this is embarrassing. Why you, you know, privileged kid, this is embarrassing. Why don't you buy me this car? (laughs) You know? Um, And um, he says in typical fashion, Amir, Anna, I bought you this car because anything that will happen to a car will happen to this car. <laughs> I was like, what does that even mean? That's like, like Sudanese dad wisdom. <laughs> right. It's like, what does that even mean? He's like, well, 
I want anything that can happen to a car to happen mm -hmm. so that when it does, you'll experience it, go through it, identify it. And when you take it into a mechanic, you'll know what it is that needs to be fixed and you won't be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, bro, anything that could have happened, happened to that car. <laughs> Timing belt, alternator, starter, muffler, exhaust, ball bearings, motor mounts, brake pads, you name it, coolant leak, whatever happened. But you can see that I can recite all of those things. Mm -hmm. And when I hear them, I know them. And I took that lesson and applied it to everything in my life. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> I don't ask anybody to do anything for me that I don't have at least an understanding of. What's so interesting to me is I learned all of those lessons through DIY culture. Gotcha. You. you know? And we we bought we bought a 1985 Dodge Ram van. <laughs> I want to hear the mistakes. Tell me about the mistakes that happened to learn <laughs> that you learned through DIY culture. What happened? <laughs> I mean, you, you the uh, the windshield wiper motor broke in the van while touring. While touring, and yes. we bought another one and learned how to install it. I've learned I know how to install anything in a 1985 <laughs> Dodge Ram van. It had a rebuilt engine from a Dodge Charger in it. We uh, couldn't go over 60 miles an hour or the serpentine belt would break. I've changed a gasket in that van and Can't found a slice this, of pizza inside the... It yes. just kept on going. Yes. You know, but we the windshield wiper motor broke. We bought another one and, and, it, and it just wouldn't start. It wouldn't go. So we literally put three coats of Rain-X on the windshield and I'm not kidding wrapped wire on the windshield wiper so who was ever riding shotgun had to move it back and forth manually through the rain okay <laughs> so we're driving on fourth of july back from lincoln nebraska to columbia missouri and it just goes off like i'm talking torrential downpour the longest the longest like streaks of lightning you've ever seen in the sky and you have to roll down the window and we're just like going at it what are you gonna do you know you're just doing that for three hours straight you know Jeez. so nothing phases me right you know? nothing phases me Doesn't that, that that, kind of but that's people don't see that now mm -hmm. like i just saw you on national television in france people don't know about ahmed and sin who Drove three hours with no windshield wipers, yeah. <laughs> and does that does that bother you? Or do you do you uh, do you have to suppress the urge to tell everyone about your history, or are you fine with it? Because I find that in rap, um, there's definitely this culture of chastising younger generations and people who saying yeah. who don't know about the history and saying you got it easy back in my day, and this is what we did, and I'm tested and approved, etc. Personally, I'm very much against that, mm -hmm. where I keep it to myself, my history. Yeah, um, I, I think so. I think I'm the same way, too. That's all That's all the stuff that I had to deal with, you know? I don't think anyone needs to really know about that, or people probably don't care. I mean, the, the stories are funny. But don't you think it's dangerous where we're, we're, we are now romanticized, and I get a lot of emails from even Sudanese aspiring artists mm -hmm. who see the end result mm -hmm. and not understanding what exactly we had to endure and the crazy f part for me the scary part for me is if people ask me for advice on how i got to where i am how do you live in new york city and support yourself and your wife 
from independent music and the majority of the world doesn't know who you even are. Mm -hmm. I don't have an answer for how to replicate that process. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to say. You know, does that, do people ask you, like, we came out at a time, it was, it was timing. We were at the tail end of an era and then social media came out and then the internet came out and then direct to fan marketing mm -hmm. and digital distribution deals. And we had already established ourselves in the older era of music so that we could take advantage of it yeah. and be in the forefront because we had already been established before. How do you tell someone now how to do what we're doing? I mean... I always say just it's all hard work but I don't know if it's necessary to have to you know regurgitate the story over and over again you know yeah I yeah, mean I, yeah. I, I make it a point when people want to talk to me about stuff to listen and to try to answer as much as possible I don't want to I'm not going to come back at them and, and that's a pretty broad question you know there, there's, sure. there's probably a lot more to that question than we already know. So I try to kind of break it down. You know, one of my favorite things about um, my uh, career is my relationship with the band Caribou, you know? Yeah. Dan Snaith completely plucked me out of obscurity. You know, I gave him a demo at one of his shows. It had my email address in the back. And a few months later, he, he wrote me and told me their drummer broke his wrist and they needed a replacement. And I took, I took it on. And it changed my life. And since then, he has been a mentor to me, you know. And he, he brought me into the game and he's been a mentor to me. So I told myself, this is what I want to do for other people as well. So uh, when people ask me that question, I want to start a relationship with them. I don't want to just answer it and just be gone. I'll be like, here's my email address. Let's talk. Let me know what you're going through, what kind of things you want, you're dealing with. And I can respond accordingly. That's what he does for me. Makes sense. And I feel like that's really important for aspiring artists and, and hobbyists and musicians alike, you know, because it all also comes back down to the DIY community for me as well, because that is a, a thriving community, you know, where, where people can talk to each other and um, bounce ideas and just kind of sh shoot the shit with each other. And that's that creates a an inspiring environment for everybody, you know? I, I wonder if those... I wonder if it's a difference in genre. I, I feel as though when I'm asked those questions in hip-hop, mm -hmm. people want a concrete answer. Mm -hmm. They want a blueprint on how you did it, mm -hmm. and they try to replicate it. And um, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's different from, from genre to genre. I... Literally, if people have asked me, what equipment do you use to make music? Mm -hmm, and yeah. then they go out and buy that exact, exact equipment. exact same stuff, yeah. You know? And they say, you know, what was the inspiration for this album? And they replicate it. Mm -hmm. Is it the same in, in your genre of music? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the same in art altogether, you know? Sure. But the thing about that in particular, th there's, this, there's this one book I read that gave me an understanding of how I want to make music and how I want to make art called Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. It's a, oh, it's a, yeah. Awesome. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's a book yeah. about making comics. And um, if you take, you take a lot of what he talks about in this book and the themes are universal to art at large. And one of the things he talks about is the six layers of the egg. And I, I tell this to everyone. And he talks about how a genuine and earnest and honest you know, uh, piece of art 
if you look at it as an egg, you know, what you're seeing is the final layer, like the, the shell. But if you break it down, there are layers and layers and layers of how it, that person got to, to creating that, you know. But then you also see someone who's copied or replicated that thing. And if you break open that egg, it's hollow. There's nothing in there. And when people do that kind of thing, when they like go out and buy the same gear that you're using or for me, like buy the same pedals that we're using or something like that or yeah. buy the same, you know, stuff we're using on stage, it's obvious. I'm not saying I, I'm paying attention to people replicating my music, but like when I hear other people, you know, and it's so obvious that they're creating something, it's not genuine, you know? Sure. And I think like competition kind of helps that mediocrity exist, you know? And that's why when people ask me those kind of questions, I want to start a conversation with them and I want to continue talking to them and say, what are you trying to, where, where is this going here, you know? You can buy the gear that I buy and you can use the same stuff that I'm using, but that's not really going to, that's not really going to answer your question, you know? So let's talk some more. Let's create a community, you know, and start another conversation. You know, I don't think a lot of artists do that kind of thing because they're so focused on their career or, their, or what they want to do. And How do you make time for that? You just do. You just do. It takes a, a few seconds to respond to an email. Times how many emails? I mean, how many emails <laughs> do you get? I don't get that many emails, do you? You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Dirt DMs on Twitter, Instagram, we have like Facebook, my person, my actual web address on my email on my website it's constant it's constant and i don't know how to answer everyone i do at shows mm -hmm. i'll talk to kyle's come home at a show yep when i get off that stage yeah I, I i i definitely take that time to interact and answer questions because i'm curious yep. I'm, shows and touring is when i'm learning mm -hmm. i'm learning about other people what what they appreciate what they don't experiences around the world but I, I don't see how you do it but you are a better man than me and I've always told you that <laughs> <laughs> when are we having coffee next I leave uh -huh. I leave on the 17th when do you leave I leave on the 19th can we do have, this weekend can we have coffee yes absolutely my man alright Kulushi Tamam Kulushi we're gonna be alright <laughs> I love that song yo. thanks man. <laughs> my man I'm Elia Einhorn, joined by Amy Rose Spiegel. You've been listening to Sinkane and Odyssey here on the TalkHouse podcast. Check out Odyssey's newest release, Beneath the Surface, his awesome live record out earlier this month. And do not miss Sinkane's Berlin Sessions EP. Also do not miss the behind-the-scenes footage, photos, video that we post on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we are at the TalkHouse in all those places. You can also visit TalkHouse.com for our rad written pieces. If you enjoyed today's episode, head over to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe. While you're there, rate and review, because every time you do, it helps someone else find the podcast. We always love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening today. Peace. Bye.